Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got one of the greatest contemporary authors of historical fiction on the podcast today, Sebastian Fawkes. He's famous for his books about the First World War and its aftermath. He is famous for doing meticulous research, for vividly recreating the set on which he places his actors, his fictional characters. We all read Birdsong. We all read Charlotte Grey. We all read The Girl at the Lion Door. He is described as one of those rare novelists as being literary and popular at the same time. He's presented TV shows. He's on radio all the time. Bit of a legend, and it was great to have him on the show. He's just finished another novel about the aftermath of the first war and the trauma that people lived with following it called Snow Country. So I saw that and thought it's an homage to me. So he's coming on the pub, no question. So it's great to have him on. I discovered to my great sadness that I played absolutely no part whatsoever in the titling or the contents of his new book. But still, I'm glad we had a chat. If you want to watch the vast amount of programmes, documentaries, listen to the podcast that we have about the First World War, you can do so at History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. We've got a subscription service, very, very small amount of money every month. You get the world's best history channel, no aliens on there, no kind of bonkers conspiracy theories, just, you know, history about things that have happened from the Stone Age to the Nuclear Age around the world. You can access it anywhere in the world, and we do our best to make sure we've got a lot of global history on there at the moment. A lot of First World War content, both around the Western Front, but other theatres as well, including the millions of troops from the British Empire that fought alongside, well, inside the British Army in the First World War. Please go and check out historyhit.tv for all that wonderful stuff. But in the meantime, here is Sebastian Fawkes. Enjoy. Sebastian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Well, I was honoured when I saw the title of your new book. I'm sure you had me in mind when you... It's a homage. It's a rather long homage, but you know, I'm sure you're <laughs> worth it. The more I read and study about the First World War, the more interested I become actually in the aftermath. We have the poetry, we have the sources, we have the films, the novels about the war, but it doesn't feel like we do as much for that generation who then stepped out back into civilian life. I think that's probably true, or maybe I haven't read as much as I might have done. Certainly, the subject of the rebuilding of Europe after the First World War, it doesn't seem to me to have been as touched on or to be so current in people's minds. I mean, there's just been a book out about Germany after the Second, which has received a lot of attention. But the rebuilding of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or rather rebuilding of society in the wake of the dissolution of the empire, how people managed in Germany and Austria in 1920, say, it is pretty interesting. And it went through many phases, I think, of dissolution and despair. 
And one of the main sources I used in looking at the background for Snow Country was Stefan Zweig's memoir, which I think it's called The World Was Yesterday. But Zweig is a very strange man and not particularly likable, but he does document in some detail the struggle of people in those countries to, well, basically to survive, first of all. And lots of those, the literature like you that I have read in this period, it remembers the elite who care very much about Austria's reduced circumstances. And I wonder why you chose to set the novel here, where you could have written a novel about trauma in Britain or France or even Germany. But is there something about the trauma of having been through conflict, terrible, terrible war, and also seeing your nation, your imperial unit that you were once part of and proud of, just disappear from the map. Are there two levels of trauma here? I think so. Basically, the reason that Snow Country is set in Austria is because it forms part of a very loosely linked, I don't really like the word trilogy, but a group of three novels anyway, the first of which was called Human Traces, which came out in 2005. And that concerns a young Englishman and a young Frenchman who are both very ambitious psychiatrists, who at the end of the 19th century have this shared ambition to set up a sanatorium or a hospital which will treat poor people by charging rich people a lot of money. But beyond that, they will really unriddle the secret of the human being, why we are so given to excesses, to violence, to instability, and why one in a hundred of us is sort of functionally mad. And the reason that therefore they ended up in Austria was for fairly obvious reasons that it was in the last years of the 19th century, that that was the sort of focus of exploration of this kind of work in Vienna in particular. Also because I like Austria, there's a part of it I've been to a lot, Corinthia in the southeastern part, where a friend of mine's family comes from. But Snow Country, like all the books I've written really, is about, as you've just said, sort of trauma on a sort of dual scale on two levels really. And it's about the personal lives of people. And don't let's forget, you know, it's a novel, it's not a history. It's a novel about people's hopes and fears and loves and desire to get on in the world. But also it is about how these are constrained and influenced by the larger historical events which have been taking place all around them. And in the main character in Snow Country, Anton, the obvious way in which his life has been hugely affected is by having fought for Austria-Hungary between 1914 and 1918. And for the other main character, Lena, who's a young woman, some 15 years younger than him, her world is constrained, well, partly by the difficulties of her family, but also by the rather corrupt world she finds in Vienna as it tries to pick itself up after the war. I've talked to lots of veterans on this subject of more recent wars, but how did you come to think about the relationship between surviving with the things that you've seen and done on the battlefield and the new political reality? Like, is there a link or can it be easier to deal with the things that you've experienced if your side is said to have quote-unquote won, if you're happy yeah, with the no, politics think, around you? I think you sound diffident about putting the question in those quite simple terms, but I think it's a good question, actually. I think it is significant. And I think a lot about my family, although I haven't written specifically about them. And my father was of a generation, he was born in 1917, so he was 22 in 1939. And he spent six years in the army. And he saw a lot of action in North Africa and then in Italy at Anzio, where he was quite badly wounded. But, you know, he survived. Obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be here. 
And it was very interesting growing up with, I was born in 53, so the late 50s, early 60s, basically all the fathers and some of the mothers of the kids I knew had had experience of this war and to some degree, some rather more actively than others. And, you know, it was very interesting how the ones who hadn't been active were restive about that. They wished they'd been more engaged, most of them. But dealing with it, I think, I mean, my father was a very phlegmatic character and he was an optimist and he was very well balanced. A man with a very good temperament who was just determined to have a good life and to provide for a family and that his children shouldn't have to go through what he'd been through. But undoubtedly, I think that it was probably easier for him thinking that what Britain had done alone initially and then with the Allies was a thoroughly worthwhile thing. And, and probably that helped him to deal with the feeling that he had witnessed on the battlefield terrible things. Um, well, we know what happens on battlefields and your men and your friends get dismembered in front of your eyes. Not an easy thing for a 20-year-old to accommodate. But knowing that it had been in a good cause certainly, I think, was probably helpful to him. That He wasn't particularly given to introspection. But in Snow Country, the main character, Anton, has been on the losing side and has seen the power of his country completely disappear into this rather shambolic, sort of corrupt society, which is completely polarised in the 20s between go-ahead left-wing Vienna and backward rural Catholic, the rest of the country. And he, Anton, finds it very difficult, I think. It is hinted that he's suffering from something like post-traumatic stress disorder, but we don't really go into it. It doesn't really need a diagnosis, I think. It is just something that any sensitive man would struggle to deal with. The disappointment as well is so palpable. And there's a line that I found very compelling when it said something about we're into this new century. You thought it was going to be a century of bloody science and engineering and aviation and instead we just poured ourselves into the greatest wars in human history that feels like a line that speaks to the present as well yeah that line is actually spoken by a woman that runs the asylum she's the daughter of one of the people who set it up and she's not a gloomy person she's rather practical and forward-looking and optimistic though having to deal with the fact that there's no bloody money in austria and therefore she's going to find it hard to finance her asylum her sanatorium but I think it's true that certainly the last years, the sort of fin de siècle and the first, maybe first decade of the 20th century, you would find in enlightened and educated Europe this, well, for a start, you have in Paris this explosion of modernism in art, but also in psychological science, this feeling that following on what Freud had written, that there was real progress and a real chance that we might sort of understand the human mind. And then it turned out that most of Freud's early cases were scientifically somewhat less than secure, shall we say, to put it politely. But in any event, rather than solve the riddle of humankind and in some sort of benevolent and philanthropic way, what the big questions facing the intellectual elites of Eastern and Western Europe in 1920 were, were what kind of creature are we after all? I mean, the means of mass destruction had been available for a relatively short time machine guns and big field artillery. And what were the chances that when they were widely available in Europe, the political leaders would overlook their potential and pursue the sort of paths of peace? Well, very slim as it turned out. So I think that sort of what you might call existential problem obscured any sense of progress in science and politics.
does that line come from a place of pessimism now? Do you know, I mean, the 90s, this trope is slightly overdone, but there was a sense, you and I were both very, very young in the 90s, obviously, hardly remember it at all. You were a child winner of lots of best book awards in the 1990s. But there was a sense that, oh, we've, the Cold War's done. We've got rid of the old shadow of nuclear obliteration. Thank goodness we can file that under done. The future's all going to be sort of internet and great excitement and fixing the world's problems. And now we're dealing with like catastrophic, well, various things that we don't have to rehearse, but one of them is a bizarre and strange undermining of Western democracy itself. Like, did you feel the parallel when you're writing this book? No, I hadn't really thought about it until you spelled it out. But we got married in uh, 1989. And I remember writing something at the time. I wrote a poem to my wife to celebrate our getting married. And I remember it contained various references to the ending of apartheid in South Africa, the freeing of Mandela, the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, all these things which, you know, one had grown up with as a sort of unshakable evil doom around the world. And there was undoubtedly a feeling of fantastic optimism that these things which had seemed immutable and awful could actually crumble and change and could be changed for the better. And we all remember books called The End of History and so on, which suggested that a sort of social democratic enlightened model would rule the world, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, why this hasn't come about is for many complex reasons. But instead, we've seen a rise of a rather barbaric and populist, and as you rightly say, in some ways, rather anti-democratic feeling around the world. But I wouldn't want to stress the parallels too closely, because I think, as far as this country was concerned, the writing had been on the wall for some time, and the pre-war Edwardian era was already a period of intense doubt and uncertainty, as our empire was disappearing, partly at our volition, partly at its own volition. If you read Kipling, and you read his famous poem, Recessional, The Captains and the Kings Depart, etc., The Fires Dwindling on the Headland. You know, this is written in the 1890s, so there's already a sense of change and actually of peril, I think, as well. You listen to Dan Snow's history. I've got Sebastian Falk's legend on the podcast. More coming up. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. You mentioned you got married in the 90s. You also published, famously, Birdsong, one of the most successful novels of our lifetimes. And there's been this huge upsurge of interest in the First World War around the anniversary, but before and after. It's always fun for me to have historical novelists on this podcast, because in a way, do you think, and don't be modest, I mean, do you think you've done more for that public engagement with the war than historians? Historians would hate that. <laughs> um, I think when I was writing Birdsong, I was aware of a paradox, which was that I had become very interested in this. I'd always been slightly interested in the First World War, but had always shied away from it as the background for a novel as being a subject too big, too complicated, and frankly, too repulsive. There wasn't much fun and laughter to be had from khaki and mud and wounds and gas and putrefaction and mass slaughter. So I wasn't really sure how I would ever put it into a novel that people would enjoy reading. But at the same time, I did become aware, I think in the late 80s, uh, when I was working on a newspaper on the books pages, when quite a lot of books came out on the 70th anniversary of the armistice. And I read some of them and I chatted to friends of mine, pretty well-educated, enlightened people, and they seemed to know very, very little about it, really. And I do feel there was a way in which the memory of the First World War was obscured by the way that the Second World War was so much better remembered and indeed memorialized, largely because of the Holocaust and the efforts of Jewish community worldwide to make sure that this was not forgotten, that it was properly understood and so on. And I think that allowed the First World War to slide out of popular public consciousness, as it were. But at the same time, the paradox was there are plenty of books being produced. Of course, it was still being taught at university and school level, and there were still plenty of excellent historians writing about it and re-evaluating and so on. But it didn't really, I think, reach the general public and I do think it's very immodest of me to say so, but you've tempted me into immodesty that novels like Birdsong and also the works of Pat Barker did ring a bell because they reminded people of something they had half forgotten. And of course, I was fortunate enough when I was researching it in the early 90s that I could still meet veterans of the First World War, and I met quite a few and talked to them. In fact, they're reminiscences as spoken to me were rather less use than actually the documents I was able to read in the Imperial War Museum by and large. By this stage, all these men were at least 95 years old, and most of them were telling anecdotes that they could no longer remember if they were true or not, really. <laughs> but they knew that this was my such and such story, and this is my gas story. And But actually, to me, the great joy of being with these men, talking to them, was it gave me a sense of validation when I went to France with them, and I stood on battlefields with them, and 
they had that way, as old men do, of physical contact, holding your hand as they explained that this was the very spot on which they'd stood. So for me as a novelist, the great thing about that was it brought history out of being an academic thing by which one was rather intimidated, and it brought it into the present. It was this guy. It could have been me. It could have been you. It was this piece of earth right here. Nothing to be afraid of. We can talk about this. We can understand this still to some extent. And then, as you say, there was, of course, the four years of remembrance between 2014 and 2018, which I think were pretty well conducted. And I think then the efforts of the government and numerous bodies to educate, basically, to reach out, commemorate the BBC, among many other people, English Heritage, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, the Imperial War Museum, and so on. Enormous number of initiatives to engage younger people particularly. And I think that that did stimulate a quite a big debate. And the historians rather fought back at this stage, I must say. And there's a school, as you know, of historians who hate this idea of First World War exceptionalism, that this was a conflict unlike any others. On the contrary, they argue, it was just an egregious, admittedly, and horrible example, but an example in a continuing story of European bloodlust. And that debate, I think, was public, and I think that was interesting, and I think it was taken up by the public, and I think the understanding of that war was increased by it. I've talked to historians that tried writing historical novels, they find it very freeing. And one of them has said to me, they find actually they can get closer, they think probably to some kind of historical truth by freeing themselves, by using the novel form. How should we think about the novels that you write, in this case, No Country About Post-War, the novels you've written about the First World War? How should we treat those as readers? I think the interaction between fiction and history is the part of the problem of the First World War, there weren't many good novels about it at the time. The 20s produced a lot of really terrible fiction in which soldiers attempted to write novels in which they just changed the name of their regiment to the Royal Loamshires or whatever it might be. And then they told their stories. And then there were memoirs which came out largely about 10 years later, most of them, Sassoon and Graves and others. But writing fiction is a very different matter. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is that fiction will always start with the internal life of the character. It's going to start with, how do I feel? How do I respond to this? Not what is going on. And I think that's something that novelists can do, which probably most other writers, however good they may be with words and sentences, however great an understanding they may have of historical events, struggle with. I mean, so for instance, in Birdsong, you don't really have any sense of what is happening politically. You have absolutely no sense of the causes of this conflict. You only get a sense of what it felt like to an ordinary guy. And I think that is, of course, a very valuable contribution that fiction makes if it's read in conjunction with history, with informed history and with primary sources. You don't find that in history, but I think the two are should be, this is going to sound a rather bland answer, but I think they should be complementary, really. Snow Country is immediately after the First World War. Why do your novels seem to hinge on these decades of the 20th century? Do you find it easy to write about? Is it the subjects are sufficiently weighty? What is it about this time? I'm a writer who likes to think that I'm very objective and that there is nothing personal, nothing subjective of me in my books. So I think of myself like a painter who goes and you either imagine an abstract or you paint from life in the countryside or 
whatever, but you're not painting yourself. There's no self-portraiture going on at all. However, it's big, however, of course, everything comes out of your head and everything comes through your fingers. And the women are created by you as much as the men, the old people, the young people, the people from other countries living at different times and so on. And as I've got older, I realized that a lot of my books are actually really trying to answer the same question, which is a question I sort of first posed to myself when I was about 17, which is, how on earth did we find ourselves in this mess? So I'm 17 in 1970, and this is a pretty bleak time in the Cold War, not as bad as when I was a little boy at school during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it felt like we all might go to hell. So I do think that seeing my father go off to the local hospital to have some German shrapnel taken out of his arm, in which had worked its way down there, so this would have been in about the late 50s, Seeing my mother's scrapbook of her father, who'd been killed by a German sniper crossing the Rhine in 1945, when he was going actually as a reporter. He'd been a soldier in the First World War. So I never met him and just trying to figure out, I'm not saying I had a particularly unusual childhood or that I was traumatized in any way by things, but you do want to work out who you are. And I think over a long period, if you write a lot of books, you are inevitably working out the questions which affect you personally. Who are we? And then I suppose my study of history, which was pretty random, frankly, I didn't do much history at school. I didn't really start reading serious historical books until I started writing novels. But one thing it led me to ask is, I don't really go very far in history before I come into anthropology, which is, you know, what kind of creature are we to do these things? You think of the excesses of the Roman Empire, the Roman soldiery, which marched through a village and left no woman unraped, no child unkilled. And, you know, likewise, the First World War. Here we are, Europe, the continent of Shakespeare and Goethe and Mozart and so on. And we just stand in a field and kill 10 million of one another. So I suppose the second lot of books I wrote really span out of that into sort of what is the flaw what is the terrible thing that runs through us that makes us the way we are? And I think all of this really comes back to a sense of puzzlement when I was a child growing up, and I still haven't really found the answer. Well, Sebastian, that's disappointing because I was going to finish this podcast by you telling me the answer. Come on, man, you've worked it out. Is it called <laughs> testosterone? No, I think it's to do with evolution, and I'm very interested in anthropology and how we evolved and what were the sort of important changes which made Homo sapiens dominant. And in fact, the next book I'm going to write won't be the third of the Austrian trilogy. It'll be something along those lines. But a reviewer of Snow Country did say, I hope he won't wait 15 years before he completes because he's posed so many questions. We do want to know the answer. So I promise you that the third volume of the Austrian trilogy, which I assume will come out in about four or five years' time, will give the complete answer to everything rather like sort of Stephen Hawking meeting Socrates, all rolled up in one. <laughs> You've got to try, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I've got to try. Otherwise, what's the point? I agree. Sebastian Fox, thank you very much. The book's called Snow Country, everyone, and named close to my heart. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dance History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. 
I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors, that's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.